Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, the Gospel. This is it. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, as as simply put as anywhere in the entire Bible, The most important thing, Paul says, I could ever tell you or have ever told you. All that we've studied in 14 chapters pales in comparison to the significance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For everything that we've talked about, if the gospel is left out of it, what's it for? The gospel. Paul absolutely owned it. The gospel stirred his heart and caused him to travel as he did, changed his entire life, flipped it upside down. The gospel. And Paul took it personally. I love this about him. He says in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. You hear Paul say that and you almost say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean your gospel? Paul owned it. Paul would say in Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to establish you according, again, to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is my gospel, he says. He's not denying it belongs to anyone else. He just owns it so personally he calls it mine. And in his swan song, the very last letter of Paul, near to his death, his execution, we believe there in Rome, In his final letter to Timothy, he said, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Can you say that? I want to tell you about the gospel. Or do you say, oh man, have I got good news? Can I share my good news with you? Do you know Jesus? Do you know that He died for you? And was buried and on the third day rose from the dead. My gospel. And it has changed my life. It it did three things. You might note this. My gospel saved me. It saved me. Absolutely. As Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, my gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It saved me. Secondly, this is my gospel that sanctifies me. As Paul would continue in Romans 1.17, For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's the sanctification process. As it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. My gospel saved me, and now my gospel sanctifies me. And my gospel, number three, sends me. John 17, 18, Jesus said, As you sent me into the world, he's praying to the Father, also I have sent them into the world. And he had and he would. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Matthew 28.18 Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. This is my Gospel. It is the saving, sanctifying, sending Word of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we know nothing else, we ought to know that. If you know nothing else of Scripture, if you have no other understanding of the history and the knowledge of where this has all come from, if you haven't read through and studied the Word of God, if nothing else, every one of us is called as His children, His followers, to know the Gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm not talking about as a piece of information but as something that has changed your life. How does the death, burial, and resurrection of one man change a life? Well, Paul's going to begin to get into that. We're going to talk about why all three aspects of the Gospel are important to the Gospel on Sunday. But tonight, the cause of the last and the greatest issue of division at Corinth, the resurrection. Man, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe, as some are touting even from Israel today, that His tomb has been discovered, and that His bones are likely somewhere inside, you don't know Jesus Christ. The resurrection is everything. Our entire faith hangs on the resurrection. Remove the resurrection, and the whole thing is done. It all falls apart, it's meaningless, it's worthless, it is pitiable. And I'm getting ahead of Paul. In verse 2, Paul says this of the people at Corinth. You might say, how are they having controversy, division over the resurrection? Something so fundamental to faith. Well, Paul already said in verse 2 that they received it. If you look down in verse 11, he says they believed it. They received and they believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead never to die again. So you need to understand this. His resurrection is not the divisive issue at Corinth. Their resurrection was. The problem that now Paul has to address and will through this entire chapter, and we won't get through it all tonight. But he's not trying to... Help them believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They believe that. That's not the issue. It's what about theirs? It's their future resurrection that has people in camps at Corinth divided about what's going on and what is truly happening. And you'll see that very clearly as we begin to read further. Yes, they believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but their resurrection, what that looked like, what that meant, well, that's a different thing completely. They were divided. Based on Paul's response, some were teaching there was no future resurrection of the body. None whatsoever. That it just wasn't going to happen. That they were already being transmogrified into a spiritual being. They were already being kind of changed, and therefore the body itself is pretty much useless. So that thing's going to die, that thing's going to fade, it's not going to be resurrected, that's not what resurrection means. We're just going to become more and more spiritual. To this, Paul turns his attention. And if you have ever wondered, maybe not so much about Christ's resurrection as much as about yours, this is the chapter to study. This is the one to read. 
What will it be like? How's it going to work? Paul comes at this from three irrefutable directions as he makes a case, not just for the resurrection of Jesus. No, he'll, he'll make that case, and wonderfully, and thankfully, the people at Corinth had a problem because we wouldn't have this marvelous chapter if they didn't. But he comes at it from three irrefutable directions as he impresses upon them the reality of their resurrection and ours. Now I'll give you an outline that we will use over the next couple of weeks. He starts, number one, he reestablishes Jesus' resurrection. So in the first 11 verses, Paul will take the time to reestablish the very resurrection of Jesus Christ as the basis for all things. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul said Jesus is the foundation. There is no other foundation which has been laid but that of Jesus Christ. He's the point. So now Paul's going to say, and if we're going to talk about resurrection, we've got to start with his. So he begins by reestablishing Jesus' resurrection, first 11 verses. Secondly, he will repudiate several Corinthian contradictions. Ways that their understanding of resurrection were completely contradictory. And he's going to point out, and there, there are three or four of those. And that's verses 12 through 34. He reestablishes Jesus' resurrection. He repudiates Corinthian contradictions. And number three, finally, he reveals their resurrection and ours. He explains it in a way that, I'm sorry, nobody could unless they had been trained by Jesus. Unless they had heard from him directly, as we will see that Paul had. So that's our outline. And Paul now is going to go into one of the most full and profound teachings on how the dead are resurrected and how the living are resurrected. But get this down, note this, in full bodily form. The absolute physical resurrection of the body. This is what Paul is arguing for. Gordon Fee says, in a body adapted to the new conditions of the future. So glorified bodies, wonderful bodies. I hear Lana just chuckling down here. I know you're looking forward to yours. I am too. Not to yours, but to mine. (laughs) We all could use the glorified body because as Paul says in another place, right now we groan. In these earthly tents, we just groan. So Paul's going to talk about this, these new bodies, how our bodies will be physically resurrected. And this, I'm, I'm slow enough on this because it is as central as it gets to our faith. It is the perishable made imperishable. It is the dishonorable made glorious, the weak raised up in power, the natural raised spiritual. And all in the twinkling of an eye. Given the context of the letter, their argument, again, is specifically against, not only are they arguing about their future resurrection, but several at Corinth are arguing against the physical resurrection of the body because they misunderstand the pneumatikos. Remember what we've been talking about, the spiritual things. They're confused about them. Paul has been trying to reorganize their thinking a bit in the last several chapters to understand what it means to be of the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit and to move in the Spirit. And as he's done that, now he comes to resurrection. Well, their thinking about spiritual things is still somewhat paganized. 
And so it confuses even the issue of resurrection. As they delighted in the operations of the Spirit, they began to view the physical body as irrelevant. Truly, some may have believed, I think the implications are here, that they were already starting to take on angelic forms. That had to be the Corinthians who were still in their 20s, because (laughs) once you get out of that, there's nothing angelic going on anymore. The whole issue of being able to speak in different tongues, tongues of men and tongues of angels, there were Corinthians who we believe were thinking that, hey, I've got this otherworldly tongue, I've got this spiritual capability, I'm becoming more and more spiritual, the body is irrelevant. And that kind of thinking is dangerous because since the physical didn't matter, gross immorality was tolerated at Corinth. doesn't matter. What you do with your body doesn't matter because it's your spirit that's, that's growing up. body's going to die off anyway. And it actually was a parallel form of Gnosticism. It says nothing physical matters, it's just the spiritual. Well, Paul's saying, hold on now. They're, they're believing that Jesus himself was not raised in bodily form, but was raised a spirit being. Well, Paul deftly argues the point. He begins with Jesus. And remember this, Jesus is himself both the pattern and the precedent of our future resurrection. So part one in this outline, Paul reestablishes Jesus' resurrection. He begins in verse one. We've already read a few of the verses. Let's pick it up in verse three. As he says again, I deliver to you as of in protos, first importance. What I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. And then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. The fact that Paul would write that down and send it off in a letter is remarkable. Because he's talking about something. This is not for Paul 2,000 years ago. For Paul, this is 20 years ago. Just a mere 20 years had gone by since the resurrection, the resurrection claims of the apostles of Jesus Christ. And here, Paul busts it wide open and says, look, you don't even have to ask the apostles. You can ask any one of 500 people who saw him in his physical body after he was supposed to be dead. And most of them are still alive, Paul writes. So hop on a ship from Corinth, go to Judea and look them up. And they will tell you, yes, we saw him. How many eyewitnesses do we need? Have you ever seen a court case where they walked 500 people into the stand? I mean, I would think after 75, you'd go, yeah, this probably happened. This is probably true. And that's what Paul is saying. Any number of 500. 20 years ago, this happened. And you can ask any of them. How many of you can remember back 20 years? Now, if you're in your 20s, it's a little harder. But if you're in your 50s, not so hard. I remember vividly, I can tell you exactly where I was, what I was doing in the late spring of 1996. I know. I was at the last public payphone at the edge of the wilderness where I was taking a group of college students whitewater rafting. And we didn't have cell phones just yet. I had a beeper, which was cool. 
I got to take that. Where's the phone? We were so advanced back in those days. 20 years ago, right? And I was on a public payphone calling Cheryl because I was going to be out of reach for like three days as we camped out in Whitewater Rapid. Call home. I remember this vividly. Her voice is a little shaky. What's going on, honey? Well, I'm pregnant. And I found out on that stupid payphone at that dusty little diner at the edge of the wilderness that my son Hayden was going to join us in the world. And that was 20 years ago. Seems like it was yesterday. I remember the payphone. I have this visual. I also have a visual of sitting in the front of the raft, bashing down the raft, going, Yeah, I'm a man, I'm a man. <laughs> Son. 20 years is a drop in the bucket, is it not? And Paul says, Ask. Just look back. These 500 saw it. This is not just something that was drummed up by one or two men. You know in Mormonism that Joseph Smith had three witnesses. Three witnesses who said, yeah, the golden plates that Joseph Smith said he saw, yeah, we saw them, yeah, that's, that's, that's legit. And so because of those three witnesses, this whole religion begins to burgeon and grow and all that. Before they died, all three witnesses recanted. No, actually, we did not see anything. The entire religion is based on one man's statement which looked, by the way, an awful lot like a comic book that was written back in that time. I kid you not. Christianity is not based on Paul's ideas. It didn't come from Peter having a little too much to drink. It didn't come from 11 apostles or 120 disciples who were just holding out, we're going to make this thing work with or without Jesus. Christianity was based in fact with eyewitnesses who were there and then it changed their lives. They couldn't live any other way. They, they couldn't not be changed by that. They saw Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. That's how Jesus described Himself. So what did they see? They saw a man in the flesh back from the dead. Luke 24, verse 36 Luke 24.36, which says, While they were telling these things, now these are the two men who were on the road to Emmaus, despairing, saddened, mourning the loss of Jesus that had just happened on Friday morning, and now it's, it's Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening, they're making their way, and all of a sudden, you know the story, Jesus shows up and they don't know it's Him. I love it. So now they, they, they have seen Him, and now they have raced back to Jerusalem, met with the apostles, and they're telling what has just happened, which is yet another eyewitness account on the day of His resurrection. And the apostles' minds must have just been spinning. And it says in verse 36, And He Himself stood in their midst. Just stood there. He didn't knock on the door and wait for it to be opened. He was just there. Sup? No. He said, Shalom. Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they were seeing a spirit. Note that. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What does someone look like in their resurrected state? Jesus was in flesh and bone. Now a glorified flesh and bone state, an ability to be in their midst, 
And yet, flesh and bone, nonetheless. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, All right, have you anything here to eat? (laughs) And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. Not just because Jesus loved to eat, we've already established that he did, but to show them, look, a spirit's not going to chomp down on a piece of fish. Look at this. I'm, I'm eating here. You're touching my hands. Flesh and blood. And it's interesting that in Luke's resurrection accounts, he is the most explicit of all four evangelists in describing the actual physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Why? He's Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke traveled with Paul who taught the resurrection in full bodily form of Jesus Christ. Paul understood it. Luke understood it as well. The two traveled and worked closely together. And Luke saw the imperative nature of this doctrine. That is the doctrine of full bodily resurrection, which is the promise not only of what we see in Jesus, but it's the promise to you and to me as well. We're not going to be some floaty ethereal thing. Some ghostly apparitions. Floating around and... I love the way C.S. Lewis paints it in The Great Divorce, that book. We will be more solid than we are now. You know, more substance, more real. We think we're real now? And we're a bunch of buzzing molecules. We will be more solid because we will be the flesh-made spirit and yet still full bodily resurrection. Acts chapter 13, verse 33, Luke records Paul talking about this. Paul saying, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And remember that, the begottenness of Jesus is his resurrection. And then he goes on and says, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And that's Psalm 16, verse 10. And so that's Paul's argument. He starts off saying, don't think the physical body resurrects. Okay, ask those who saw him, touched him, and ate with him. Ask them if he was in the flesh, if he was flesh and bone. Absolutely he was. And back in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, Paul says he then appeared to James, and we have to pause there just for a second, to James and then to all the apostles, and all the apostles is probably the last appearance, but he appeared to James in there as well during what we realized was 40 days of post-crucifixion, post-resurrection appearances, 40 days where he was appearing to different people in different places at different times. And he apparently during that time appeared to James, not the brother of John, but James the brother of Jesus. Half-brother. Brother Brother of the same mother, you know. And James did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. James would become one of the great leaders of the first century church, but he didn't buy it. He scoffed along with the rest of the brothers, perhaps Jude as well, both who ended up writing letters, both who ended up calling themselves bondservants of Jesus Christ, not brothers. I would have said brother. I would have used that to my favor. I write to you 
Pastor Rick, the brother of the Lord, don't mess with me. <laughs> James and Jude say, no, we're, we're, just, we're just bond servants. But before the resurrection, Mark chapter 3, verse 21 tells us when his own people heard of this, that he was teaching and not even having time to eat or rest, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he's lost his senses. He's gone nuts. And that Greek phrase, his own people, it's used in the Septuagint over and over to refer to kinsmen, that is his family. So Jesus' family thought he was nuts. Thought he was losing it. We even see his brothers taunting Jesus in unbelief. John chapter 7 verse 4. He's still up in the Galilee. The feast is happening down in Jerusalem. Feast of Tabernacles, I believe, at the time. And, and they say to him, Hey, no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. In other words, you got a Messiah complex. <laughs> They're saying, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. And now Paul says, and he appeared to James. I wonder what that was like. I mean, if I was Jesus, I would have had some fun with it. <laughs> James, are those my shoes you're wearing? What, Jesus? <laughs> he appeared to James. The resurrection changes everything. It changed James. It changed Jude. It changes brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes you. And James was changed marvelously. He became, again, as we said, the leader among the apostles and among, especially in the Jerusalem church. So he appeared also to James and then to all the apostles. And I do believe that's probably a reference to the ascension. That last appearance. And finally, at the end of all these appearances, he appeared once again before the apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, says he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. They watched, they met with, they talked with, in this final appearance, Jesus in his resurrected state, and then they watched him lift off. And it wasn't for Jesus Think about this. Jesus did not ascend from the Mount of Olives for Jesus. He could have taken a bus home if he wanted to. He could have just gone, I'll see you soon, and been gone. No, instead, they watched him ascend up into the clouds and stood there staring at the clouds for the longest time, amazed at what they had seen. Why did it happen that way? I believe it was for the apostles to see the risen one rise. To recognize that this resurrected Jesus now is, from an from a earthly perspective, we would see Him, if we were standing there, rising up into the heavens. And for our minds, that would instruct us, He's going home. He is going back to the Father. He's going back to His rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God, the place of Christ's authority. It was for the apostles that He ascended in that way, and they saw Him at that last ascension, that last Appearance. And then Paul comes to himself. Verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, a couple things to note. This is profoundly life changing, obviously, when you consider Paul before and after he met Jesus. 
But the word appeared here is optonomai. Optonomai or optonomai. And it means to be seen. It's where we get our word optometrist or ophthalmologist. It's, it's to be seen. It's actual uh, physical appearance. Now, Paul says he appeared to me also. I saw him. Just as the other. It's the same word for appeared that he uses every other time here. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to more than 500. He appeared to James and to all the apostles. And he appeared to me. I saw him with my own eyes. So I asked the question, biblically speaking, when did he appear to Paul? Because if you read in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26, three times Paul describes his conversion. Describes what we've called the Damascus Road experience. And in all three descriptions, he explicitly describes seeing a blinding light and hearing a voice. And he never once says he saw Jesus. He heard him. And there was that great light. But Paul doesn't in his own testimony say that he saw Jesus until he writes this letter and he says he appeared to me also. And because of the use of the word appeared and the way he's writing it in this context, the implication is he saw Jesus. So when? And for tonight's purposes, I will only say somewhere between the road to Damascus, Arabia, and heaven. Somewhere in there, Paul saw a full appearance of Jesus. Was it on the Damascus road? He just didn't describe it in those testimonies. Was it in Arabia? where he received some amazing training and and was able to then bring so much doctrine to the church? Was it when he was caught up to the third heaven? The third heaven? We'll get there in 2 Corinthians. So that teaching's coming. But he's saying right here, I saw Jesus too. He speaks as one now. He speaks as one who wonders why he was ever afforded such an appearance. Because he says, last of all, as to one untimely born. Man, I was untimely born. I missed it. I wish I'd been one of the the apostles originally on the boat in the Galilee with Jesus in the healing, seeing the feeding of the 5,000. I missed it. I'm untimely born. I came after the fact. And I felt that way. You know, I I grew up during the Calvary movement. The Jesus People Movement of the 70s. I was 20 minutes down the freeway. And I missed it. I missed it because I was in my little church there with kind of eyes closed to the rest of the world. And that was going on right 200 people at a time being baptized in the Pacific Ocean. I'm down here, you know. I missed it. Man, I was one untimely born. That's not exactly what Paul's saying. There may be some inference there that, you know, I came after the fact, but no, he uses a word when he says as to one untimely born. The word is ectroma. And ectroma means abnormally born. It means freakish. It means deformed or aborted. Why would he use that word? little side note here. And this is kind of in the area of surmise. We can't say for certain. But there is thinking out there that this word ectroma, because 
of the kind of word it is, and it kind of comes out of the blue, it's, it's a little shocking. If you were reading along and, and you read, and last of all, as to one aborted, he appeared to me also, you'd go, uh, what? Well, if you were reading this in the Greek, that's what you would see. As to one born deformed. As if one with a birth defect, or one stillborn, or one aborted, he appeared to me also. And you would read that, and you'd stop, and go, what? That's, what? Ectroma? Why would he use that word? And some think it was used in Corinth as a slight against Paul. Paul the deformed one. Paul the aborted apostle. There was tension from Corinth directed at Paul. Especially from the camps that were not of Paul. Oh, there was the Pauline camp, but there was also the other camps, as we read in the beginning in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, there were other people that were kind of camped up and, and were opposed to Paul, and there is thought that that word, ectroma, Paulos ectroma. Paulos. Remember, Paulos means small. And it's also thought that Paul was of small stature. That he was a short man. So here's this short guy who calls himself small, which by the way was a name Paul chose. He wore. He went from Saul to Paulos. And here's this guy who's showing up and telling us all this stuff. And it has been suggested that abnormally born ectroma could mean dwarf. He's a dwarf. Ectroma. Paulos. And so it was used in a derogatory or negative insult way behind Paul's back, but he caught wind of it and used it on himself. Why would he do that? Because ever since Paul met Jesus, he did consider himself small in light of the person of Jesus Christ. We talked about on Sunday that Paul was no chauvinist. Let me tell you something else. Paul was not prideful. Paul was not an arrogant man. Well, but he's so bold in his letters. Yeah, because he's writing by the Spirit of God. And I can tell you, I think, a bunch of what Paul wrote, he wrote with trembling hand, or he spoke with trembling voice as it was written for him. Why? Because he was compelled to write. He had to write what the Lord told him to write. And to say some of the things that Paul said would be absolutely humbling. To have to take the kind of stance that Paul would have to take? Man, it's a whole lot easier to skip over these things. Some of you know, and I shared on Sunday morning, I sweated 1 Corinthians 33-38. Not that I thought anyone was honestly really going to throw rotten tomatoes at me. I didn't see that happening. But I did see sisters hurt if I didn't handle it correctly, if I didn't speak it biblically. That's the last thing I wanted to do. When we talked in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about sexual immorality, and I know that that takes place. I'm knowing that and knowing the culture we live in, but having to talk in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 against sexual immorality of all kinds, and knowing there will be people here just shrinking in their seats. I don't want to preach that stuff. I don't like talking about those things. I would much rather talk about resurrection. Paul was humble. And was in one of the most humbling positions that a man could be in. Not a chauvinist, not a prideful bigot. Just an ectroma. And Jesus, Paul says, Jesus appeared to me. He goes on to explain how that felt, verse 9. 
For I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle. Man, there were people in Corinth who had said that. He's not an apostle. I'm not fit to be called apostle. He says, I get it. I agree with you. And then he goes on. Because I persecuted the church of God. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, (laughs) yet not I, but the grace of God within me. I worked harder. But Paul in his humbled state could even say, I worked harder than all the rest, and yet for all that hard work it wasn't me. I didn't work harder to prove myself. I worked harder because His grace was in me. Because me, this ectroma, this little Paulos, he appeared to me. How could I not work as work my fingers to the bone to bring the truth of my gospel into this world? He says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. I, I think I've shared this before. I don't know why I get to do this. I mean, I'm thankful that I get to be paid to do this. But that's not why I do this. I just get to. Why? Why me, Lord? You know? The kid with the cleft palate. Why me? And I get to. And it's awesome. And I love it. And it's, it's humbling. And I know this about Paul because I read it in his letters. The longer he lived and the more he matured in Christ, the less, the less worthy he felt. He didn't feel more worthy. You know, growing as a follower of Jesus and maturing in Jesus doesn't make you more self-assured. No, it makes you more humble every step of the way. You become less and less as he becomes more and more. And you find your confidence is in Him, not in you. It's in who He is, not in who you are. It's in what He's done, not in what you can do. And we see this in Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. You see, here Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. Later he'll say, I'm the least of Christians. I'm the chiefest of all sinners. Everyone's ahead of me on the curve. I'm just thankful for the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So, not only was Paul not a chauvinist, he was not prideful. Not anymore. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ will do that to you. As with James, as with Jude, and as with Paul, we see the resurrection changes people. It must. Verse 11. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So after explaining this and going back to Jesus and saying, look at Him, if you question your resurrection, your resurrection, what it's going to mean, what it's going to be like, Paul would say, look at Jesus. You look at Jesus and you will know what your resurrection is going to be like. It's very simple. But warning with this, the more you look at Jesus, the more you look at His resurrection, 
the more it's going to change who you are. So he reestablishes Jesus' resurrection, lays that as foundation, and goes on now to part two. He repudiates Corinthian contradictions, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? You already told me you believe that, he were, that Jesus resurrected from the dead, so how now can you say that there is no resurrection? It's a contradiction of terms. Now he's going to come at these contradictions from three different perspectives, three different ways of of appending, if you will, their contradictions. And the first one is this. So we're in part two, A. And then we'll do two, and then we'll do D. Okay, so those three. If Jesus didn't resurrect, and this is the point Paul's about to make, we would be pitifully hopeless. If Jesus didn't resurrect, all this that we're doing even right now, 2,000 years later, would be pitifully hopeless. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. You can't have it both ways. You cannot believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and say there's no resurrection. If you say there's no resurrection, then you're saying there's no resurrection of Jesus. And if there's no resurrection of Jesus, Paul is saying, we are pitiful. We're liars. We're lost. We are absolutely vain. He goes on in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Verse 19. If we had hoped, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, our entire faith is a contradiction. Because our entire faith rests on the premise that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If he didn't, we are 2,000 years of pathetic farces. Every church service, every worship, every meeting, every baptism, every moment at the table of the Lord, a farce, a falsity. Ridiculous, pathetic. If Jesus did not raise from the dead. You see how, what Paul is saying, how critical the resurrection absolutely is to our faith. And it's what Jesus said. John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, if I had been Jesus in that moment, I would have said, Pick one! But instead, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they didn't get it. He began talking about the resurrection early on. His resurrection. Stating this is it. This is, this is the one sign. You want a sign? I'll give you one. For this unbelieving and perverse generation, one sign, the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. There's your sign. Here's your sign. <laughs> and yet, geologists... Aryeh Shimron believes he's found the tomb of Jesus. 
along with his wife Mary and their son. They call it the Talpiot tomb in Jerusalem. It's getting a lot of attention again just in the last couple weeks. I think I mentioned this a week or so ago. But a little more on this. Based on soil sample, here's, here's why he believes the Talpiot tomb is the tomb of Jesus and Jesus and Mary Magdalene and little Jesus were buried there. Okay? This is how, this is why he, he is touting this and people are going, oh yeah, that's pretty good evidence. Listen to the evidence. They've done soil samples on the James Ossuary and discovered that the James Ossuary, which I'll tell you what that is, the James Ossuary has the same soil makeup that they're finding in this tomb. What's the James Ossuary? An Ossuary is a bone box. You see them all over Israel. They're stone boxes. They're smaller. And they would lay the body in the tomb. They'd lay out the body and let it decompose. And then they would come back in at a later date and collect all the bones carefully and put them in an Ossuary. And they would be stored and buried that way. And they're everywhere in Israel. And so they discovered this several years ago now. They discovered the James Ossuary. And it was all kinds of controversy. But on that ossuary was inscribed, and it's inscribed in first century Aramaic, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And then there's a big furor about, oh, the guy who had it, he forged it. It was all a big forgery. Well, what was not announced in the press was just a couple of years ago, that was thrown out of court. There was no proof of it being a forgery. That it may very well be from the first century James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Now, there were a lot of Jameses, there were a lot of Josephs, and there were a lot of Yeshuas in the first century. These were very common names. I mean, just go to the Daily House and you hear a couple of them right away, you know. (laughs) Very common name, well, at least one. Yeah. So, so they say, well, okay, so that's James bones and it very well may be the ossuary may very well be the bones of James brother of Jesus to whom he appeared in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul describes that could be have you made the connection yet? this is how weak this whole thing is the ossuary which even if it belonged to James could belong to the Talpio tomb could be James family tomb I have no problem with that It is a stretch then to say, well, because we found the ossuary of James, that this must be the tomb of Jesus. That's the entire basis for this right now. Which is really flawed. Besides the fact, we know that a poor carpenter from Nazareth, Joseph, probably did not have a tomb in Jerusalem. Be very unlikely. He might have a tomb in Bethlehem. Because he and Mary were both from there, registered there. That's that's. If you're going to have a, a burial plot, go go back to the place of your of your forefathers, your family. But Nazareth would be a real likely place to find a bone, a, a tomb with a bone box that, that belonged to Joseph. So that's that would be unusual. And we also know, besides all this, Jesus was not buried in a family plot, but in a borrowed tomb belonging to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Isaiah 53.9 prophesied this. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. What a specific prophecy. Assigned to, to uh, his grave assigned with wicked men, that's, that's where he should have been buried. 
His body, having been hung on a cross, should have been tossed into a pauper's grave along with the bodies of the criminals. That's the way that would work. Okay? That's not what happened. Yet, he was assigned with a rich man in his death, so he got to be in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew 27.57 When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. The man went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. We know from John that Nicodemus helped him with that. And laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled away a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Furthermore, not only was Jesus buried in a borrowed tomb that did not belong to anyone in his family, but it was only a weekend rental. (laughs) Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Man, I tell you what, we hang out on verse 19 almost too long and you start to go, yeah, it's pathetic. It's pitiable. We're hopeless if Christ has not been raised. And I love verse 20. But He has. You can bet your life on it. You can hang your entire faith on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And now Paul's going to reverse the argument. He's going to say, because Jesus did resurrect, we are profoundly hopeful. If He didn't resurrect, we'd be pitiably hopeless. But we're profoundly hopeful because He did. Verse 21, For since by a man came death, note that, ladies, not by Eve, by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Marvelous. Hey, if in fact He resurrected, and we know He did, we will too. And we will do so in the same manner of the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, this is what Paul is arguing. Think about it. How, how do we die? Our physical bodies, one way or another, expire and go into the grave from dust to dust, like Adam. How will we then resurrect? Our bodies will be raised up out of the grave from death to life and be transformed simultaneously in that resurrection. It is a different resurrection, by the way, than that of Lazarus or the synagogue leader's daughter or, or the widow's son. Those were resurrections unto death. I mean, you understand that. They resurrected, but they would die again. Lazarus got two funerals, poor guy. But we're talking about resurrection like Jesus, resurrection to live forever. We will be resurrected as He was. Our bodies up from the grave will arise. With a mighty triumph. And I can't continue because I can't rhyme with a rise. <laughs> with a mighty triumph over the Lord of the flies. We, we can go with that. <laughs> now someone might say, okay, so you're saying we're like Jesus in our resurrected. We go into the grave, we come out of the grave, we're resurrected. What if I've been cremated? Huh? What about that mess? <laughs> Listen, personally, Rick's opinion. I'm not a big fan of cremation because... It has pagan roots. But, 
Molecules have never been a problem for God. He knows where every single molecule is. He knows where every aspect of our being, our physical being, is. 9-11. How many people died in the towers who were rendered ash from dust to dust? What will happen to them in the resurrection? Oh, their bodies will be raised and glorified just as Jesus was. In Christ, all will be made alive. Well, that sounds like universal universal salvation. No, because he says in Christ, all will be made alive. So the catch is this. got to be in Christ. If you're in Christ, you will be made alive. If you're not in Christ, you're on your own. Good luck finding your molecules. You know? Verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming, and then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Bible students. On which feast day did Jesus resurrect? The feast of first fruits. Christ the first fruits. Which refers to Jesus. It is a description of Jesus. It's Reshit Katsir in the Hebrew. The feast of first fruits. And Paul describes him that way. Here's the order of what the Bible calls the first resurrection. The order begins with Christ the first fruits. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the firstfruits. And it's all referring to Him. And the feast of firstfruits was designed as a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go back to Leviticus 23. Study the feast of firstfruits. Think it through. Look at it. Compare it. We won't do it tonight, but compare it to Jesus in His resurrection. It was given as a feast to Israel to look forward to the resurrection of Messiah, Christ. The firstfruits. And with the resurrection of Jesus, the firstfruits of the harvest, we can, be, we can be assured of what the rest of the fruits will look like. Bunch of fruits. He's the first of a bunch of fruits. No, we can understand. We can see the harvest will come in. The rest of the harvest. He's the first. And we will follow those who are Christ at His coming. Anyone's eyes twinkling yet? Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, listen, note this, will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. There is something marvelous that will encompass, that will take hold of our bodies and glorify them. And it's not as some have said to me, you mean I'm stuck with this? No. No. This will be glorified. This will be fantastic. This will be better than it's ever been. But it will be based on this. God is going to use this, our physical bodies. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And get this, every single person who is a part of the first resurrection will be saved for all eternity. That's what the Bible calls the first resurrection. It is all about salvation. And every single person in that resurrection are being saved, will be saved. Everybody. The first resurrection with Christ, the first fruits, the first resurrection is already underway. He started it. That resurrection will conclude with the last person saved in the tribulation. That's all the first resurrection, and that is all one big aspect, one big movement of salvation. Now you might say, well, what about, what about those who are saved or who grow up in the millennial kingdom and then, and then they die and, and all of that? Well, that's not called the first resurrection. The first resurrection is exclusively all that God has done in, from, the, from the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first fruits, all the way through the very end of this age, which ends prior to the next age, which is the millennial kingdom. Okay, So the first resurrection, as described, we'll turn over, keep your finger there, and quickly turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. You cannot, uh, let me put it this way, you should not talk about the resurrection unless you're willing to talk about the first and second resurrection. Because it's all part of the deal. The first resurrection, Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. Let's say verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now he says, this is the first resurrection, and then he describes it. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's how I know the first resurrection ends at the end of the tribulation. Or with the last person saved in the tribulation. Because all those who are a part of the first resurrection will then rule and reign with him for a thousand years. That includes Old Testament saints. That includes anyone in the last two thousand years of Christianity who has died in faith in Jesus Christ. That includes the raptured church. That includes those who come to faith in Jesus as tribulation saints during that seven year period. That's the first resurrection. And all together then are part of this glorious millennial kingdom, serving with Jesus, being near Jesus, part of his holy, marvelous government. The first resurrection goes from Christ the first fruits to the last person saved in the tribulation. And in that first resurrection, in Christ, all saved. All saved. The second resurrection is at the end of the kingdom age, the end of the millennial kingdom, not one will be saved. Not one saved in the second resurrection. Why? Because it is a resurrection unto judgment and death. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 20. No, not verse 1. I mean, you can look at verse 1. It's a great verse, but that's not where I wanted to go. So look at verse 13. No, okay, 12. That's what I wanted. Verse 12. 
And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Note that, not according to the book of life, because none of their names will be in the book of life. And then he says in verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Two resurrections. The first resurrection, Christ the first fruits, all the way to the last person saved in the tribulation. And that is pure salvation. The second resurrection, those who want to be judged on their own merit. And they will be resurrected for the great throne judgment described in Revelation 20. And not a single one will be saved. Why? Because you can't be saved on your own merit. Nobody is good enough. It's only by grace that we have been saved. I love what Moody said. He said, he who is born once will die twice. The first death, physical death. The second death, lake of fire, the spiritual death. But, he said, he who is born twice will die once. And I like to add, if at all. Because if you're born twice, born physically, and then you are born again, born of the Spirit, you at worst will physically die. Your spirit going home to be with Jesus, your body going into the grave, or crackle, 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 if it happens to be cremated. (laughs) And then you will be raised up never to die again. And the only exceptions to that, again, are those who died and were resurrected in this life, like Lazarus. Right? Martha, she was distraught. Mary in tears. Martha goes out to meet Jesus when four days after the funeral, He finally shows up. John eleven twenty one, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha was a believer. It is natural and normal for us as believers to grieve. And so she's grieving. And she says, even now, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Remarkable. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the last, in the resurrection on the last day. First resurrection. And Jesus said to her, remember? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What are you talking about, Jesus? There are people who will be alive when I come and they will never taste death. The raptured church. At least those living at the time of the rapture. And then Jesus just said, do you believe this? And I would ask you tonight, do you believe this? What does it mean, I am the resurrection? It simply means that resurrection does not happen without Him. Jesus is the resurrection. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. He's the resurrection. Jesus, the Messiah. And He has taken on an awesome role, which if you give me two more minutes, I will tell you what it is. Verse 24. Rachel laughs because she's like, how often do you say that, Rick? Let me pull back to verse 23. Let's get a running start. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, or to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. 
power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. I love it. The death of death. Death will die. Isaiah 25 verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. So you can be assured. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.10, Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. In other words, in His resurrection, Jesus Christ yanked all the power out of death, left it powerless. It no longer has mastery over life. If you are in Christ, but Rick, I may still die. You may. Hallelujah. You're home to be with Jesus. So it doesn't have mastery over us. We are not those who walk in fear of death. Jesus has taken that away. And He has abolished that power of death, but death itself will be ultimately abolished. Death right now is defeated. Death then will be abolished completely. And it reminds me of what Jesus said. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And to me, it's really sad when people say, so we should have a good life in Jesus right now. Well, okay. But that sure is limiting the life that He promised. You might have a lousy life right now. So, it's a drop in the bucket of eternity compared to the life that He has brought. The life that is abundant. The life that is forever. I I think that when we read John 10.10 and we water it down and say, see, Jesus wants you to just have a happy life now. I think everyone who suffers for the sake of Christ wonders, how does that apply to me? I'm not having an abundant life. I love Jesus. I believe in Him. But you know, honestly, my life's kind of hard. I don't see abundance. You will. You will. Through the resurrection. But look at this again. Verse 27. He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. What? This is rockin' Pauline theology. I mean, this just reeks of Paul. And listen, it may be a little difficult when you read that to know who's who. Because he uses the he a lot. He's going to do this and him and he and, and who's who. I don't understand. Let me explain this to you. Speaking of Jesus, Paul refers to two psalms. One clearly divine, one clearly human, both about Jesus. The first one is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my feet until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. A divine statement of God the Father talking to God the Son and David overheard it and wrote it down. And so that's the divinity of Christ. And God, the Father, saying to Jesus, I will make your footstools, or your enemies a footstool for your feet. So you sit at my right hand until I do that. And Paul's referencing that, but he changes it just a little by the Spirit, but he does change it. 
Psalm 8 verse 6 says, You have put all things under His feet. Now originally David wrote that referring to man, humanity. But it also applies to Jesus who also became man. Right? So He's divine in that Father says to Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Christ in the form of man, Jesus, you have put all things under his feet. So Psalm 110 speaks of the divine nature of Christ. Psalm 8 references man and the human nature of Christ. And Paul pulls both into this section. So those are the overtones that you're hearing. They're from those two psalms. Okay, but you might still ask, but who reigns until who puts all things under whose feet? (laughs) The context indicates that Jesus must reign until Jesus has put all Jesus' enemies under Jesus' own two feet. That's what Paul is stating here. Now David's intention in Psalm 110 was the other way around, that the Father said, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God says that to Jesus. But here Paul says Jesus is the one doing it. He's the one. David by the Spirit, get this, David by the Spirit in Psalm 110 was talking about the result of Christ's reign. That all that God sought to accomplish would be accomplished. Paul, by the same Spirit, is talking about the resolve of Christ's reign. That He's going to do it. That through Jesus all this will take place. He will reign until He has accomplished this and then He will hand the, the rule and authority back to the Father. This is not a contradiction. It is God and Jesus working in concert. Because either way you slice it, it's both God. The divine Jesus, the divine Father, we're talking about God in all of this. And it's, it's kind of piggybacking off what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from, through, from whom are all things and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. There's not two, there's one. Who are two? Actually three if you include the Spirit. But one. Right? So let me make this really simple for you. Let me reread this with Jesus instead of He so you can hear how it's supposed to go. Alright? Verse 24. Then comes the end when He, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. He being Jesus. For He, Jesus, must reign until He, Jesus has put all His enemies under His feet. That's all Jesus. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He, God the Father, has put all things in subjection under His, Jesus, feet. But when He, that is Jesus, says all things are put into subjection, that could also be God, that one could go either way, it is evident that He, God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. So all Paul's saying right there is everything's in subjection to Jesus except God the Father. You know, He's not in subjection to Jesus. He put all things in subjection to Jesus. And then Paul writes, verse 28, when all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. 
And at that point, we arrive at the end of the millennial kingdom. You see, the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation, that, that glorious return, that doesn't constitute all things under His feet. And it's a remarkable reality that in that thousand year reign of Christ, there's still rebellion. There will still be those who scurry out from under His feet, who reject His rule, who don't accept His authority, ending at the end of a thousand years in a massive rebellion, Revelation chapter 20 verse 1 tells us. Why? Why would God allow that? Well, as we've said before, so that no one in eternity can ever claim man in a perfect state can be good enough. And Jesus will put all things in subjection and then hand over the rule to God the Father. And at that time, Revelation 20 verse 14, then death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. And death is defeated. And as Paul writes, God is all in all. Meaning what? Meaning all the work that God the Father and God the Son did separately is completed and now God is just all in all. Listen to it described. Revelation 21-22 speaking of new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Father and Son, God is all in all. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The lamp is a lamp, but the glory of God illuminates it. But the lamp is the Lamb. Isn't the lamp the glory and the glory the lamp? Yes. Because you see, God is all in all. Revelation 22.1 Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. God and the Lamb. There will no longer be any curse. For the throne of God and of the Lamb, one throne of the two, one throne for one God will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. And when it's all said and done, God and the Lamb, Jesus, will reign into eternity. And it starts with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 